You can be seated. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke. Chapter 1 will be in verses 26 through to 38. And as I mentioned before, we're spending the next two weeks walking through the account in Luke of the birth of Christ and the events that led up to that monumentous event in history that we celebrate during Christmas time. And I realize that as you're turning to Luke 1, uh, there are some of us here who are maybe new to Christianity or new to the Bible. And so if I could give you just a little bit of background about, about what we're jumping into, I think it would probably be helpful to you. So the book of Luke is written by Luke, uh, but we know a little bit more about him than his name. He's mentioned several times in the New Testament letters of Paul. He's actually someone who traveled alongside of Paul and some of the early apostles and helped them to plant churches and to preach the gospel. And so he is an evangelist. But Luke's first and most primary job is that of a doctor. He's referred to again and again as the beloved physician. And so that was his profession. Just like Paul made tents on the side because being an apostle wasn't really paying the bills, uh, Luke is an evangelist alongside of Paul, but he's also a doctor. And Luke is, because of his medical training, somebody who is incredibly educated in the ancient world, knowledgeable in the Greek language. Uh, He's a thoughtful man who has come to believe that the gospel is true. And the gospel of Luke itself is actually part of a two-volume series. Uh, Luke wrote two books that are in the front half of your Bible called the New Testament. The first of them is the book of Luke. The second of them is the book of Acts. And he writes both of them to a young man named Theophilus. At the beginning of his gospel, he describes his purpose in writing Luke and the book of Acts. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, that have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having, following, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so Luke spends probably a couple years retracing the path of Jesus, meeting with the eyewitnesses to Jesus's miracles and his teaching and his resurrection, asking them to recount for him the things that Jesus said and the things that he did. And he compiles that together into the book of Luke. And he sends it to a man named Theophilus who was likely a young believer. And he says, I'm giving you these things so that you will be confident that the gospel that you have been taught is true. One of the things that you'll notice about the book of Luke, which is really where we'll spend uh, all of our time today, is that Luke mentions the life of Jesus' mother Mary more than any other of the gospel accounts. And most people have agreed that this is because Luke went out of his way to sit down with the Virgin Mary and to ask her about Jesus, but to start by saying, let's start at the beginning. And so we do start at the beginning of Mary's involvement in the birth of Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, verses 28 to 36, let me read it for us and then we'll walk through it together. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one. 
the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of a greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom of his kingdom, there will be no end. Mary replied to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So Luke begins this account of Mary and her early life by saying, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth. And we live in a society that in many ways was shaped by Christian influence. So when you hear Nazareth, you may not necessarily know the ins and outs of Nazareth, but it's a, it's a familiar phrase to you. There's a band in the 70s or the 80s called Nazareth. There's universities called the University of the Nazarene. There's whole denominations that orient themselves around this term, Nazareth, this city. Even if you were to talk to somebody who is more secular, maybe not even a believer at all, and were to say, what's the significance of Nazareth, they would probably say it has something to do with the Bible. But don't mistake your familiarity with Nazareth as being identical to the ancient world. What we know archaeologically is that Nazareth is an exceedingly small city. It's like maybe a city block or two. It's an impoverished farming community. It's a poor farming community. Uh, it's not a place that is well-known. It's not a place that people cared about. Actually, until about 50 years ago, we didn't have any recorded discussion of Nazareth outside of Christians who cared about it because Jesus' family was from there. It's just this small, insignificant, podunk place in the ancient world that people more than a few miles removed from it have no idea about. But beyond that, what we know is that the people who do know about Nazareth don't think very highly of it. When Jesus begins to call his disciples in the Gospel of John, he calls a man named Philip. And Philip is excited, and so he goes to another man named Nathaniel and says, we found the Messiah, we found the one that was promised in the Old Testament. His name's Jesus, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel goes, mm-mm. Can anything good come from Nazareth? No. And so I, I don't say this to be mean or, or to make you feel bad, but in many ways, Nazareth in the ancient world was conceived of like we conceive of like Sefner. In the sense that everybody's like, well, there's some good people from Sefner, but it's kind of a crazy place. And if you don't believe me, you can just go hang out at the 7-Eleven on MLK after sundown, and you'll be entertained for hours and also scared for your life, right? We make jokes about Sefner all the time. This was the same with Nazareth. If we were to update this to modern times, it would be like somebody coming to you and saying, God has taken on human form. He was born in Sefner. And you go... <laughs> no, no. Nazareth is not just unimportant, but for the few people who know about it, they don't like it very much. And they don't like the people from Nazareth. And I don't want you to miss the significance of even these opening lines 
where Gabriel is sent from God, not to a mighty city, not to a city with great political affluence, not to a significant city in any way, shape, or form. The triune God chooses to unfold his plan of redemption in a small, humble, insignificant city full of ordinary, boring, unimportant people. But he doesn't just send Gabriel to Nazareth, generally speaking. We're told that he sends Gabriel specifically to a woman in Nazareth whose name is Mary. And she is a virgin that has been betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. In one of my seminary classes, we had to read this smaller book on the history of the Reformation and the way that it sort of shaped Europe. And there's an account of this German town uh, that was in the process of separating itself from the Catholic Church. And at some point during the separation process, all of the peasants got raging drunk, and they kicked down the door of a cathedral, and they took out a a wooden statue of the Virgin Mary, and they decided to hold a witch trial. And they said, if she floats, she's a witch, and if she sinks, she's not. And the wooden statue floated, and so they decided that she was a witch. Now, that's an insane story, and I don't say that in any way to be disrespectful of people in this room who may come from Catholic backgrounds, but it does illustrate that, that Protestants have a tricky relationship with Mary. Protestants don't really know what to do with Mary because they've seen the Roman Catholic Church elevate her to the point of another mediator, the one who goes between us to Christ as Christ goes from that point on to God. And it makes them uncomfortable, but I want you to be careful as we walk through the life of Mary, especially this early part of her life, not to do what Luther calls falling off the horse on the other side. You you may have seen Mary elevated to a place far beyond what she ever would have expected or approved of, but do not miss the fact that when the angel Gabriel greets Mary, he says to her that she is favored, that the Lord is with her, and that when we read from her song of praise before we began worship, she says, from this point on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, for all of the good things that we say about Mary, by her external appearances, there is nothing special about this girl. She comes from an armpit hole in the Roman Empire town that nobody cares about. She's probably only 13 or 14 years old because that was considered the age at which you were a grown-up in the ancient world and can go get married. So she's like a middle schooler, essentially. She's very likely illiterate. She can't read. She has no knowledge of the ways of culture or philosophy or things like that. In fact, one commentator describes Mary in this way. From all external indicators, her life would not be extraordinary. She would marry humbly. She would give birth to numerous poor children, never travel further than a few miles from home, and one day die like thousands of others before her, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. But... What we see in Mary is what we see throughout the pages of scripture, which is that God is not in the business of judging or weighing people based on the way they look or their level of social or political influence or their level of education or power or affluence. There is more to Mary than a poor peasant girl in Nazareth. And we see this when the angel greets her. He says to her, 
Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And we're told that she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern discern what sort of greeting this might be. What's interesting in Luke's account of these events is that Gabriel meets with somebody before he meets with Mary. He actually visits one of her relatives, a man named Zechariah. And Zechariah is educated. He's in Jerusalem, which is one of the the higher and more prominent cities in the area. He's in the temple. And when the angel appears to him, his response is absolute terror. He has a meltdown. His face is like, like the snapshot that happens when you're going down the drop of a roller coaster and they take the picture that they try to sell to you. He does not handle this encounter with the angel well. And ultimately, he's so full of doubt that he just keeps questioning everything that the angel says. And the angel says, okay, you need to stop talking and you're not going to talk for a while. Mary doesn't respond that way. And that's what's so astounding to me is that the angel appears to her and says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And Mary's not freaking out about the angel that just showed up in her living room. Mary's concerned with what the angel said. We're told that she was greatly troubled by the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The literal translation here of this passage is that she kept pondering the angel's words in her heart. She kept turning them over and over and over again. What you see in Mary in her encounter with an angel is not some flighty middle school girl who likes to play with Bratz dolls. There is a depth to her. She may not be the most educated. She may not be the most affluent, but she encounters an angel and is one of the few people in the whole of scripture that doesn't have a meltdown. And that doesn't come at the turn of a dime. That comes from a long life of walking with the Lord and being saturated in the scriptures. Mary is someone who cares deeply and thinks deeply about the word of the Lord and what it requires of her as she turns this angel's greeting over and over and over in her mind. For those of us who are raising girls, to me, I can think of no better prayer than that your daughter be like this. A woman who thinks deeply about the commandments of God, who wrestles with the word of the Lord and its implications for her life. To those of you who are women in this church and in this ministry, Mary in many ways is a model. You are not a second-class thinker. You are not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God or in the plans of God. But you have value and you have weight. And Mary is a model not just for the women in this room, but for all of us in this room. For years and years and centuries, the Christian church has set aside this season of Christmas and Advent to slow down and to reflect, to ponder what it is that we're celebrating. And don't get me wrong, Christmas trees are awesome and Christmas lights are great and Christmas presents are cool. But as Christians, that is not the primary thing we celebrate during this season. The primary thing that Christians celebrate during this season is this tremendous claim that God became man. And just like Mary... We need to spend time pondering that and turning that over in our hearts and considering the sheer weight of what we are marking. But in the middle of her thoughts turning and her uh, turning over the words of the angel and trying to take in what's happening, Gabriel breaks into her thought bubble. And the angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary, 
for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb, you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be the son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom, there shall be no end. If you've known me for any length of time, you know that I'm kind of a movie nerd, and that's because I have not much better to do in my spare time other than read the Bible and watch movies. And one of the things that I'm constantly drawn to are the films that, that sort of set themselves up to require a second viewing. You know, the sort of movies that, that have some sort of information at the end that changes the way that you view all of the bits and the pieces that are placed in the beginning of the film. When you get to the culmination of the story, you say, I have to go back and I have to look at this again in light of everything that's happened. And I doubt for Mary that in the midst of this crazy scene when the angel says, you are going to name this miracle child Jesus. I doubt very seriously she understands the weight of the title that she is to give her son. In the ancient world, Jesus was not an uncommon name. Mary probably knew a couple people up the road who had kids who were named Jesus. But the name Jesus or Yeshua in the Hebrew, literally means salvation, or Yahweh saves, or the Lord saves. The Lord is my salvation. And that was a name that was common for people in Israel because they all believed that their God was a saving God, and they wanted to celebrate that in the way that they named their children. Mary, at this point in her life, has no concept of the weight of that name in reference to the person who will bear it perfectly for the first time. But as Jesus' life goes on, as Mary watches his three years of ministry, as she witnesses his miracles and his healing the sick, the weight of that name begins to grow. As she stands at the foot of his cross and hears him say, it is finished, finished, the weight of that name begins to grow. Acts chapter one tells us that she was with the apostles as they were praying during the time of Pentecost. And as she sees the outpouring of the Holy Spirit after Christ's ascension, the weight of that name begins to grow. And as she watches the gospel of Jesus turn the entire ancient world upside down, down, the weight of that name grows heavier and heavier and heavier so that at the end of her life, as she reflects on all that she has seen and experienced, she can say with confidence, the Lord does save and he has saved his people through his son. There is no more fitting name for the child of Mary than Jesus, Yahweh saves. But Mary asks a fitting question in light of the promises that Gabriel has just made, that this child that she's going to conceive is going to sit on the throne of David, or that he's going to be called the son of God, all these glorious things. She asks not what I think is a doubting question, but just a pretty reasonable question. Yeah, how's this going to work? Because I'm a virgin. Now, if you don't know how babies are made, please don't talk to me after the service. <laughs> because I don't want to have to explain that. <laughs> but if you do understand that, then you know that Mary's question is a good one. And in many of the circles uh, intellectually that I know some of us run in, there's this thing that I think we're guilty of uh, that some have called chronological snobbery, which is this idea that people in the ancient world were just unbelievably stupid. Uh, the reality is Mary, as a peasant girl in Nazareth, knows where babies come from, and she knows that they don't just appear. 
She's not dumb. And so Gabriel makes all of these statements and all of these promises, and she goes, man, that sounds awesome. Where's the baby gonna come from? Because I know where they do come from. And I haven't participated in any such activities to my knowledge. And Gabriel's response should astound us in many ways as we ponder it and we consider it. He answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, a child will be born. The child will be born and he will be called Holy and the Son of God. Now, that may seem like a throwaway statement at first, but when you begin to consider the whole of the scope of the scriptures, Gabriel's response actually reflects back to the very beginning. In Genesis chapter one, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth, that the earth is formless and void, and the spirit of God overshadows and hovers over the face of the deep. And as God begins to speak by his word and to create, the Holy Spirit begins to bring into existence the cosmos and everything that God declares to be so. For many years, Christian scholars have recognized there's a basic shape to the Bible. There is the creation of the universe. There is the fall of the world into sin. There is the redemption that is offered in Christ. And there is what is called the consummation or the recreation where God fixes what has been broken. What is astounding here is that as the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters of creation to bring the world into existence, the same Spirit hovers over the womb of Mary to bring about new creation, to bring about new life. What is astounding is that here in the middle of this evil age, in a small town, in the life of an illiterate peasant girl, God has begun the process of making things new by the incarnation of his son. And the same spirit that brought the world into being is now beginning the process of fixing what was broken, starting with this peasant girl named Mary. And then he offers her a sign. He says, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son. And she's in the sixth month of this pregnancy, she who was called barren. And up until this point, Mary is unaware of that. Nothing will be impossible with God, the angel says. Mary responded, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, Mary utters maybe one sentence at the end of this whole conversation. And maybe it doesn't strike you particularly as being important, but consider the world in which Mary lives. She is a young peasant girl who is engaged uh, to a man named Joseph. And in this day and age, the penalty for adultery is death. And she is about to go and tell her husband-to-be, I'm pregnant, but it's cool, it's God's baby. That is a terrifying scenario in which to find yourself. Not only is she risking the possibility of being put to death, she is risking the very real likelihood that she will lose all of her friends because they will begin to think less of her for betraying her marriage vows. 
She realizes that in this small city, gossip travels fast. You've only got about a block or two to spread the word around, and it is going to cost her her reputation. It is going to cost her her comfort. It may well cost her her life. It will certainly cost her her marriage if Joseph doesn't believe her. And in Mary's life, we see a picture of the reality that life with Jesus has always been costly. And Mary's response to me is all the more astounding. I'm sure that she is considering all of these things. She is not stupid. She is not foolish. She knows what this will cost her. And she says, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to me, as you have said. I know the cost. I know what's coming. I know what may happen. And I'll accept it and I'll go through with it anyways. And in Mary's life, we see this small picture of the sort of people that God has always been in the business of using. God is not always in the business of seeking out and using the wise or the powerful or the wealthy or the well-off. But more often than not, in fact, in most cases, he is using the ordinary, simple, faithful men and women who count the cost and place their trust in the Lord who saves regardless of what lies ahead. And in the life of a small, ordinary peasant girl in the armpit of the Roman Empire, the saving plan of God unfolds. My prayer is that as we look at the life of Mary, we would always be such ordinary faithful people because they are the sort of people that God has always been in the business of using to accomplish incredible and glorious things. Let's pray. Father, it is an incredible thing to consider that you so often are not judging people based on their appearances or their wealth or proficiency or intelligence, but you judge them by their heart, their willingness to honor you and to let go of the reins of their life and to utter alongside Mary, I'm the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. But in many ways, being such a person is more difficult It requires us to let go of the lives that we have gripped so tightly and guarded so closely. But Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would begin to lighten our grip, that you would make us a people like Mary who will go where you call us regardless of what it will cost us, knowing that you are the God who saves and that you have saved us through Christ and his incarnation his life and his death and his resurrection. We ask now that as we come to your table, Lord, you would remind us of that salvation, that we would consider our lives in light of whether or not we have honored it, that you would bring us to repent, that you would comfort us and you would encourage us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So we take communion every week here as a ministry. Uh, If you're a Christian, if you've been walking in repentance, not perfectly because nobody does that, but if you've been doing your best to honor the Lord with your life, and if you're in good standing with the other Christians in this room and the Christians in uh, the church that you're a part of, we'd invite you to take communion with us.
But take a moment, examine yourself, uh, and then there'll be two people up front with the elements. You can come and grab that, hold on to it, and we'll take communion together. The next few minutes are yours.